All right, take your Bibles if you would. And let's turn to the book of 2 Samuel as we continue. We have two final installments in this series called Broken Vessel. And if you've been with us uh, for the first seven installments, you understand why we we call it that. Um, David is the greatest king of the Old Testament and one of the great figures in history and in the Bible. And he had uh, incredible, incredible moments and demonstrated for us some unbelievable character and integrity and magnanimous gestures of generosity over and over again we see why David is considered so great but we've also seen him make huge mistakes we've seen him do some things that just brought shame on himself on his people it brought harm and hurt to others and so we see in him a uh, the brokenness of sin but also the possibilities of someone who is a person after God's own heart and we'll finalize this next week. And then after, after that series, we're going to come together on Gator Day. Won't that be exciting? We have Gator Day coming up last Sunday of the month. We're going to welcome college students. We're going to have a free lunch for them. It's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to have a little bit of an unveiling of a new logo. I think it'll be exciting. And uh, uh, we'll, we're going to have some, some new things. And we're getting geared back up. In spite of COVID, we're going to have our, our, li- we're going to have our life groups, but also our Wednesday night uh, deeper life classes are going to kick back off this Wednesday night, so you need to follow along in those things. But uh, looking forward to the next series called Join the Journey, and I think you'll uh, be excited to see what we have to talk about there. But let's just dive in to one of David's greatest moments. And in this moment, he shows a magnanimous heart, a, a great mercy and grace But what he doesn't realize in his lifetime is the picture he is painting for you and I, thousands of years later, the picture he is painting to us of grace, of covenant love, the kind of love that God has for those who are in Christ Jesus, a a kindness of God. In fact, David refers to what he's going to do today as the kindness of God. In the Hebrew, hesed means uh, a, a loving kindness, a covenant love, a kindness we do not deserve. And it is a kindness not only that we receive, but watch this, it is also a kind of love, a kindness, a committed love, a gracious love that we are to turn outward towards one another and towards our community and towards even our enemies. And when we turn to this passage, we're going to see this incredible demonstration of God's love for us and us turning and offering that love to others. Let's look at this, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Now, once again, the setting is David is doing well as a king. He's got uh, things under control. He's got the enemies kind of under control. He's doing well, and God brings back to his heart and his mind a commitment he had had. And the commitment that he made was to a friend that he loved dearly, whose name was Jonathan. How many of you remember going all the way back to Jonathan in this series? Anybody? All right, my wife does. Thank you, honey. 
I appreciate you remembering that. Now, uh, we go all the way back to Jonathan, back in the decades earlier in this, uh, in this story. And Jonathan was the son of Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. Started well, turned out terrible. Jonathan loved David. He exchanged his armor and his robe and his signet ring. He said, you be king. I'm going to serve you and honor you. God has anointed you as king. I'm going to give you that, and I'm going to take your identity, you take my identity, and I'm going to serve you as king. And they made what's called a covenant, a commitment to one another. God brings this commitment back to David's mind. And here's what he says. Is there still anyone left? This is decades later. Jonathan's been dead for, for a long time. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness because of my commitment to Jonathan, for Jonathan's sake. Are there any grandsons? Are there any people left from my enemy's house? The house of Saul. For Jonathan's sake, I want to show him kindness. Now follow along. Now there was a servant left over from the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to, you, said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. <laughs> Whatever you need. And the king said, By the way, if you go to the king, just say, I'm your servant. That's a good starting place. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. But he's crippled in his feet. He cannot walk. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mashir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Everybody say Lodabar. That's a cool place. I like that name, but it means unfruitful, barren. It's, and, and that's not where you want to live. But he was living in Lodabar. Uh, and, and, and when we find out his name, I, I love his name. It says... Uh, Lodabar, and the king sent and brought him from the house of Mashir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And here comes the crippled, lame Mephibosheth. Let's all say that together. Mephibosheth. One more time. Mephibosheth. I encourage you, name one of your children Mephibosheth. One of my top ten names out of the Old Testament. Love it, Mephibosheth. It's just got a, it rolls out. It's got, you could call him Mephib for short or whatever, but anyway... Um, Mephibosheth and when he walks in he had been trying to keep his head low he's a man by this point he has his own son named Micah at this point he brings him but Mephibosheth walks in not knowing what's going to happen and he sees the king and the king says Mephibosheth and he answered behold whatever you need king I'm your servant and David said to him, these, these words sound familiar, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So you're going to get Jonathan and Saul's all their inheritance, all that land, I'm giving it back to you. And he paid homage. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? In other words, don't you remember what Saul did to you? He tried to kill you over and over again. I'm your mortal enemy. 
What kind of, what are you doing? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. Ziba had been taking care of all of Saul's territory. Had been, he had all of his stuff going on. And he said, I'm turning it over to Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. You're going to turn Lodabar into a fruitful place, and you're going to bring the proceeds of that. You'll share the proceeds. You're going to bring so that uh, Mephibosheth has that income. But in addition to whatever income comes to him from the land, I love this, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat where? At my table. Now, this is not a table at Starbucks. This is the king's table. He said he's going to sit at the king's table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now they're all serving Mephibosheth. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. I love this. Like he's one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son as well, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He moved out of unfruitful Lobadar, Lodabar, and now he's in the palace in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. But I want, I want to see what the, the writer here emphasizes for the second time, just so you didn't miss it. He was lame in both of his feet. He was lame. Let me pray. Father, I ask that as we expound this text just a little bit more and see this story, help us comprehend your covenant love for broken hearts for the deficiency that we have for our rebelliousness for our brokenness that you've loved your enemy and you set a table for us that we're going to take together at the end of the service and help us love people the way we've been loved we ask this in Christ's name amen what an incredible picture of commitment that this is not just the commitment of God to us but I don't want to pause I want to pause just to sit just a little bit on this is that I think there's a lesson in this passage that we need to stop and think about first we are seeing really a definition a, a, a beautiful example of what it means to make a commitment and keep a commitment you say why would I uh, here goes the pastor he's going to be picking on us about not making commitments, you know, and all those kind of things. Well, I think we've got a commitment problem growing in our society. Would anybody agree with that? All right, I can support that statistically. But I don't know that I have to. I think you sense it. I mean, most of you, I could convict you right now just saying, how, how long did it take you to decide on a program on Netflix last night? Hello. How many different streaming channels are there? And then you sit on a streaming channel and it takes you an hour to figure out which of the 9,000 shows to watch. Some of y'all are nodding. 
Now you say, are you telling us not to watch Netflix? No, maybe God is, but I'm not telling you to do that. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that we are so saturated with choices that we are paralyzed to make them. And it is not just in our television watching, which is a totally side thing. I think it has made, made major impacts on our willingness to be committed to one another in community, in relationship, in marriage. Uh, I don't want to pick on millennials, but they are uh, millennials are struggling with commitment when it comes to marriage. 64% of people 18 to 29 years old are still single. There's nothing wrong with being single. The problem is, is that's gone up from 52% in 2004, 10 years. It's gone from 52 to 64% remaining single. Now, there's great reasons to remain single, from, but one of the one reason that is not good is a fear of making a choice, of limiting yourself to one person for life. And we, have, we, are, having, we are being hardwired by our culture and society to f- the, into the fear of missing out. I, if I watch this show, I won't get to watch this show. If I date this person, what about all the other persons? Can you imagine being on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? you watch this program? It is a setup for abject misery. I'm not sure why anybody would want to do this. I mean, you're given like 25, 30 choices or whatever, and it's, you're, you're, you have uh, this poor bachelorette. She has all these bachelors, and then it's uh, uh, months. It seems like that show goes on forever, but it, it, and then it starts all over again. And, but people must love this, but they're, you're commiserating with this eternal selection process of trying to decide between all of these different really nice candidates, and then they get down to the last two or three who by that point they've got emotional attachment, physical attachment, They've done all the wrong things, and they, now they are stuck, and they have to make a choice. And most of the time, it doesn't work out statistically. wonder why. But we treat life like The Bachelor. It was, a, it, it was interesting. In a bigger city, it was even harder than it is in, uh, and even more challenging for folks than it is in a smaller city. The choices of churches... The choices of spiritual leaders and preachers and all of that. I mean, you can watch, you can watch every, you can, hundreds and hundreds and, and, and churches, and it's a struggle. We have uh, too many restaurants to choose from. They did a study about 10 years ago, and they showed that a, that, uh, with, that a group of people found it a lot easier to choose a jar of jam when they had six choices. But when they gave them 24 choices of jam to pick from, they were virtually paralyzed. I'm preaching this to you because I have sensed it in my own life is a fear of limiting myself to people, time, jobs, churches, Service, giving. What, I'm, what I really want you to walk away with today is that to love, you must limit. We talk about limited, unlimited love, limitless love, and there is that. But to love anything, 
means you have to unlove or, or focus, not focus on others. You have to limit yourself. You've got to make a choice. When I said, Sarah, you're the one, I said to every other lady for the rest of my life, you're not the one. And that sends chills up the spine of a lot of American men right now. One woman the rest of my life? And some of you are thinking because you are on, on apps all the time and you're on uh, uh, Facebook and you're on Instagram and you see all of these happy, joyous couples, all the highlight reels of their perfect, flawless lives and happiness, and you're like, I'll never get married. I'll never have that. They aren't even having that, right? It's the highlight reel. And so we are frightened to say yes But everything about the Christian life is saying yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Saying yes to God. It is saying yes to that neighbor. It is, it is saying no to their harm and yes to their, to their goodness and to their life. And, and so Jesus comes in and he says something interesting. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How do those go together? Well, obedience is simply Limiting yourself. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm making a, so if I'm going to do this, this means I can't do that. And and Jesus says the way I'll know you truly love me is that you are you are following you are limiting your choices based on our relationship. And and the reason Jesus feels that that's fair is because he totally limited his rights and his choices to save you. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind which is in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, although he had the eternal right of Godhood, forever and ever and ever he emptied himself. He laid aside the independent exercise of his rights and he surrendered those to the Father, and he said, I'm going to lay aside and limit myself, and I'm going to take the form of a what? A servant, a bondservant. And he limited himself to flesh. He became flesh. He limited himself to earth. He limited himself to 12. He limited himself to three. He limited himself to a cross. He nailed himself to a cross. The ultimate limiting was the ultimate love. I say all this to just encourage you. It's going to be harder and harder for you to make the right choices spiritually in your church life, in your relational life. It's only going to get harder. And he doesn't, he doesn't have an existence where that struggle's not there. He turned around to his disciples and he said, Who do you say that I am? And one answer is right. And then he said, If any man wants to follow me, he must do what? Deny himself, limit himself. This is Mark 8. Take up his cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. So to be his disciple is to not be a disciple to everything else and everyone else. It is to deny yourself and follow Christ.
but that is not our culture. Our culture wants, well, I can follow him some, I can follow her some, I can do this, I can do that. I can have my cake and eat it too. David gives an incredible example, and I want you to see what he did. The first thing that he did is he decided to keep his commitment, and he didn't have to. He decided to keep his commitment when he didn't need to. Why would I say that? Well, he had to choose to limit his rights. Now, in this scenario, it is important that you understand who Mephibosheth was. He wasn't just a poor, lame uh, person. He was one of the still few existing threats to David in his kingdom. You say, how was he a threat? He was just in Lodabar, and he was crippled. How was he a threat? He was any time that a, a, a king in that day and time had any of the, the king's children remaining from the previous king, those children still could claim or say, I have a right to the throne because it was passed down through the family, right? And so that's why when a new king came in, and you see this if you read the Old Testament, the new king had every right and normally would go and wipe out the families and the children of all of the previous kings so that his power was never threatened. And David not only relinquished his rights and chose not to kill all the descendants of Jonathan, he reversed it. And he took the one, one of the few remaining links to Saul a remaining threat to his own children. You see, Solomon, it probably wouldn't happen to David, but David was going to die not too long, much longer. But uh, if Mephibosheth outlived David, then Mephibosheth, once the, it's being transitioned to Solomon, to, the, to David's uh, biological children, Mephibosheth could come in and claim the throne then. So David willingly embraced his enemy. You say, why did he do that? Because he had made a choice, a commitment to a man named Jonathan. I love that scripture in 1 Samuel 20 where it describes this. It says, uh, uh, I can't give the whole backstory here, but you see David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, 41 embracing. It said, David rose from, the bed, from beside the stone heap fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another, wept with one another, and David weeping the most. He loved Jonathan, and Jonathan loved him. And they made a covenant, and we saw that covenant earlier. But listen to what Jonathan says to David. Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord. And we said, the Lord shall be between me and you, but also between my offspring and your offspring. How long, church? forever that's a commitment David remembered it and he kept his commitment even if it was a threat to him think about how, G how, how David chose secondly to limit his rights he chose an enemy Mephibosheth was technically still one of his enemies he chose someone who had absolutely nothing to offer Mephibosheth had nothing to bring. He lived in Lodabar. He was unfruitful. He didn't have anything. He had been keeping his head low, hoping no one would notice he was even there. 
Mephibosheth was a perfect definition of lost. And he wanted to be lost because he knew if the king found him, potentially he would be killed. Can you imagine how Mephibosheth must have felt when the servant showed up and said, you're wanted in Jerusalem? No, no. And he walks into the king's presence. That's why you see him falling at David's feet. That's why you see him paying homage. That's why you see him going, I'm your servant. It's because he knew most of the time a normal earthly king would have killed him right there as a threat. David chose an enemy, chose someone who had zero to offer, chose someone who would always be a threat to him moving forward, and chose someone who would need continual care. Continual care. But he had made a covenant. He had made a commitment. I dropped off a child at a university yesterday, and I gave a commitment. I will continue to send you money. All right, I will continue to feed you remotely. And we agreed and bargained and made a covenant on the amount. Right? But when Sarah and I chose to make a life, the rest of the decisions were limited by that choice. That makes sense. We said we're going to make a life And you know how lives are made, right? When you make a choice to do reproductive things and you reproduce, you made the choice. The rest of the choices are now made for you. That's your life to protect. And so we made that choice 19 years ago, so it continues until they get a job and some man takes me off her hands. But anyway, (laughs) it's got to be a really, really good man, but... Um, I think you're following me. We make a choice, and we keep it. And, and David makes a choice, and he says, I know you're going to be a hungry mouth to feed, and you've got this son Micah, but I'm committing to you're going to be at my table forever. But notice what he continually tells Mephibosheth. He looks at Mephibosheth and says, I don't really know you. I have never met you. I, I, don't even, I don't even know if I'm going to like you, and whether I like you or not doesn't matter. You're a son of Jonathan. And my commitment was to him. You know, that's how we love our enemies. We look at an enemy, and Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. And we look at our enemy, and we say, how can you love an enemy? I, I'm loving that enemy, not because I've met that enemy, know that enemy, or don't. It's not a matter of choice for me. When I chose Jesus, it limited my choices with my enemies. You choose Jesus, you limit your choices when it comes to retaliation. You limit your choices when... how in how you treat a brother and sister in Christ. You limit your choices with your resources when you choose Jesus. David chose Jonathan, and he's going to follow through with his commitment. He chose an enemy, he chose someone who would need that care, and he offered it. Now, how could he do this? How could David set himself up for potential failure 
And by the way, if you read through the rest of the, the book, some of this bubbles up and there's, some, there's a little bit of intrigue that happens with Saul's descendants and you know how human beings are. And by the way, David doesn't even follow through beautifully the way we would hope he would. Why? Because David is a broken vessel. But aren't you glad God keeps his commitments perfectly? How could David do this? I think David loved Jonathan, but I think David at this point in his life also was reflecting the kind of love that he had been given. The kind of love that Jonathan gave him. You know, Jonathan basically laid his life down for David. And David always knew, I wouldn't have a table if it weren't for Jonathan. I wouldn't have a life if Jonathan hadn't laid down his life for me. So I'm going to give my life and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, lay down my life for the sake of his descendants, whether they're lame, whether they have much to offer. No matter what it is, I'm going to do it. He is choosing to show the love by which he had been loved. Now let me turn a corner as we go to the Lord's table. I think you can see the connection with Christ. I think you can see the connection with you and me. David was not just reflecting back into his daily life the kind of love he had been given. He was reflecting forward to us the kind of love that all all of us will receive who place faith in Christ an unmerited, undeserved love where you and I are like Mephibosheth. Think about it. We're like Mephibosheth. Say Mephibosheth. All right, half of you are listening. Say Mephibosheth. All right, just want to make sure you don't miss this last part. Mephibosheth was born under a curse. He was born in the wrong family, and so were you. We are born into Adam. And through the sin of Adam, we have also chosen to sin. If you are a human being, you are born into sin. We're born under a curse. We've also been broken by the fall. Do you know how Mephibosheth became lame in his feet? At five years old, when Jonathan, they heard Jonathan had been killed, he was only five years old, a servant was running with him, and she dropped him and fell, and he fell and, and, and probably severed his spinal cord or something like that. And for the rest of his life, he bore the marks and couldn't walk. You and I bear the marks of the fall. We are broken. We are born under a curse. We are broken by a fall. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 1 says. And would you turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2, and let this prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Watch this, watch this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here it is, you were born under a curse. It says, and you were, because of the fall, because of sin, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Talk about having nothing to offer. This is what we are apart from Christ. Because of sin, dead. Talk about fruitless, low to bar, barren. Think about that. 
Talk about not being able to walk. Look how we walk without Christ. Look at verse 2, in which you once walked. How do we walk without Christ? We follow the course of this world. We walk the wrong direction. We walk in disobedience and rebellion of following the prince of the power of the air. We're following with our, with our, uns, our spiritually broken feet. We follow the wrong master. We follow the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. We're following the wrong spirit. Our legs don't work right. And then it says, Among whom you, we, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind. That's not the kind of fruit that God wants. It's, it's not the fruit of the flesh. He wants the fruit of the Spirit. And we were by nature children of what? Of wrath. So we were born under the curse, broken by the fall, barren and fruitless before the Lord. And yet, look at verse 4. Isn't that one of your favorite but God moments in the Bible? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. And guess what He did? He seated us with Him. Talk about sitting at a table. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I can just imagine those first few feasts that they had. And they would have public feasts. And the king would come out with his family and his sons and all their brides, and they would sit across the big table, and they'd have the big feast at some of these big public ceremonies. And they'd go, yeah, there's Solomon, there's his wife, there's Nathan, there's some of these others. There's Who's that guy? Who's that guy? I don't know. They probably had to put a nameplate up there for him. Mephibahu? And so they started asking each other, who is Mephibahu? Where did he come from? He's the son of who? How did he get up there? He can't even walk. How did he get up there? And they told the story of David's covenant love and then it passed down and they told the story again oh well David loved Jonathan and he made a commitment but that's David's enemy he's going to cause trouble I promise you he's going to cause trouble he should not have him in his table but David's a man of his word and David made a commitment and David sure did love Jonathan but Mephibosheth he's got that son Micah they're going to what do they contribute? Well, he doesn't contribute anything. But he eats every day at the king's table. And it's going to be that way forever. And so we come to the table of the Lord. And so we, like Mephibosheth, have been reached God so loved the world that he gave and then it says Jesus said I have been sent into the world to seek and to save the Mephibosheths and all who will hear me and hear the gospel and receive me by faith can come to my table forever
What a God we serve. Amen? What grace. Would you bow your heads just for a moment in preparation for the table? Every head bowed, and I want to ask just a couple of questions To truly receive the grace of God, you must recognize that without Christ, no matter how talented, wealthy, popular, powerful, no matter what you've, it's low debar. It is, you have nothing to give God that would merit heaven. You can come to God and say, like Mephibosheth did and Zeba did, and say, I'm your servant, I'm your servant, I'll serve you, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. Your goodness cannot get you into heaven. You have to come totally seeing your desperate need for him. If you've never trusted Christ, see how much he loved you, and he offers his life for you. Would you receive it? Mephibosheth, I think you can you imagine he looked up to David and he had to say, Okay, I'll sit at your table. Thank you. He had to receive that gift. Have you received the gift of eternal life from Jesus? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins? He's offering that. God is offering an eternal salvation and an eternal provision and an eternal protection and an eternal peace. He's offering that because of His commitment to Christ who went to the cross to purchase people like you. And He's going to keep His commitment Will you turn to Christ this morning. If you never have, before we come to this table, you come to Christ. I just encourage you to ask in your heart, just pray, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Just ask him right now if you want that salvation. Come into my life, my heart. I want to be the king's son. I want to be born again. Listen, if you pray that, if you turn from sin and self and ask, you will be born anew into the king's family. And he says that's forever. He's not going to take that away from you. You can't lose that. You are born again into the king's family because God committed himself through Jesus Christ to your eternal salvation. But you must, you must take that step towards Christ. And if you have, church, as we go into this time of communion, I just imagine it ought to be a great time of gratitude for you and thanksgiving I wonder if Mephibosheth ever got used to looking down the table and seeing a family he didn't deserve, experiencing a fortune he didn't earn. I wonder if he ever got used to just eating that food that he didn't produce. I hope we don't get used to what we're doing right here. It's the greatest gift. As Kim comes to play just a moment... I just ask that you'd continue in just a matter of confession. Maybe there's some things on your heart you need to just get right with the Lord as we prepare ourselves to take the elements.